How about now? Oh, yeah. Got a whole lot. But yeah, we'll be in uh, Colossians chapter 1 this morning, the first 14 verses. You can go ahead and turn there if you want to. The series will be called Christ Alone. Um, my wife, Amanda, and our five boys moved over to Irmo from Blythewood a little over a year ago. And for the first time in my life, I'm really excited about grass. I'm very interested in grass. I'm fussy about keeping my yard nice and edged and mowed and all of that kind of stuff because I have a nice lawn now. I didn't have a nice lawn before. You know, if you'd seen our house in Blythewood, we lived there 13 years and it served us very well. But if you look at the backyard where we want our kids to be able to go and play, just dirt. Front yard, dirt. And, you know, you could water, do whatever you want. We had pine trees everywhere, just sucked all the water out of the ground, couldn't get anything to grow. And you'd look at our yard and think we lived in a desert somewhere. But now I, I, I like having grass, right? And, and, and I want to be able to keep it up. But at the beginning of the spring, I realized, well, I got a lot of weeds going on. There's, there's some weeds in the yard. There's lots of grass, but lots of weeds. And after I received a little bit of a YouTube education, I, I learned you could, either, you could either go after the weeds hard and heavy or you could get some more grass, but you couldn't do both, right? If I tried to go after the weeds real hard, the grass was going to suffer. And if I just went after the grass and didn't treat the weeds, I was going to have to tolerate some weeds. But what I found out is the best defense is a good offense. If I really worked hard this season on getting lots of thick, lush, green, healthy grass growing, it would actually make it a lot harder for the weeds to grow. And my yard, my lawn would be able to stand up to them better. That's the approach the Apostle Paul takes in this letter to the Colossians. There was a little church plant there in Colossae that was growing in nice and full, but some weeds were coming in and messing things up. There were false teachers. Again, you've heard me talk a lot about false teachers in recent weeks, but there were false teachers, again, in this young little church plant who were trying to mix in some local pagan practices with Christianity and breeding confusion in the church. So Paul's purpose in writing this letter was to encourage the Colossians to resist this erroneous teaching they were receiving, and the best defense in this case was a good offense. So he highlights the sufficiency and supremacy of Christ. He assures them it is Christ alone that they need. So he encourages them to take hold of the gospel, to hold on to that gospel truth that they first received and to stand firm and disciplined in their faith. Paul's trying to trying to help them fend off the false teaching they're being exposed to by strengthening them in the truth that they had already received. One of the things your leaders at King's Church desperately want for you is for you to be able to know how to read your Bible, right? It, you know, it, it's not like a fortune cookie, you know? You can't just crack it open and then, and then read some verse that day and then just tie it to yourself and your personal circumstances, Right? You, you got to, you know, it's important to know who wrote it, uh, who was it written to, uh, and why, right? And, and how does it fit in the whole theme of redemption that we see throughout the entire Bible? And then from that, you can start to figure out how, how to apply it to you. It's not that hard to do, you know, especially with the tools we have today. I mean, we've got some excellent study Bibles. You know, they give you some of the, the cheat sheets and backgrounds so that you can connect to what's going on in that in that passage that you're reading that day. But I want to give you a little bit of that this morning 
before we read these first 14 verses of Paul's letter to the Colossians. Uh, again, I'll be preaching through the whole book, and I just want us to be acquainted with sort of the context here, what Paul meant to say, who he meant to say it to, and why they needed to hear it. It's evident that there were people in Colossae who appeared friendly to Christianity, but claimed to have sort of this inside track on spiritual truth and practice, right? And so they, they naturally had sort of a disdain for the unenlightened or uninitiated among them who weren't taking things that they thought were very serious and integral to Christianity that, you know, they weren't doing it their way. They weren't following their program. And Epaphras, the one who planted the church at Colossae, he was likely converted by Paul, uh, well, converted by the Holy Spirit, but converted under Paul's teaching in Ephesus, right? And so then he goes back home to Colossae. He told all his friends and family about Jesus. They believed, and he started a church there, okay? And then Epaphras goes to visit Paul where he's imprisoned in Rome to get his take on what's going on back home at Colossae. And then he gets locked up with Paul too. So a guy named Tychius takes this letter back to the Colossians with Paul's warnings about some of these variations on the gospel that they've been hearing from these false teachers that Epaphras came and reported to him. Right? There was a syncretism of ideas again. Right? There, it was a diverse community there. And so there was some old pagan ritual stuff kind of being intertwined with Christianity. And this was, this was pushed on Christians. Christians felt pressured and overwhelmed by some of this and a little schizophrenic about their standing with God as a result of it. And we only have one side of the conversation, so it's hard to pinpoint exactly what this teaching was. But we do have some hints here, right? We know that there were ascetic practices. And if you don't know what that word means, it was this, uh, it was this practice of sort of like literally beating yourself, okay? Or, or starving yourself or depriving yourself of any sort of, of uh, comfort um, or, or, or pleasure. And then there's some of this cosmic astral stuff, worship of angels, worship of stars, those kinds of things. What we do know for sure about the false teaching is that there was this, they were offering this fullness, important word this morning, okay, sort of this, this fullness of spirituality that Christians thought they needed to be legit, as if Christ was not enough, that was the problem. All it was, all this teaching was, to try to get after this fullness, is what Paul calls hollow and deceptive philosophy. We see that later in chapter 2. This fullness they were talking about depended on something more than Christ. It depended on human tradition, depended on elemental spiritual forces of this world. Again, all this is in chapter 2. We'll get there. Just setting the tone here. It depended on an observance of certain, certain food restrictions and even some sort of folk Jewish holidays and things mixed in. It depended on these ascetic disciplines I mentioned already. And we know that the false teachers, according to Paul, were proud of what they were teaching. They were holding themselves up and saying, y'all got to get where we are. Their unspiritual minds puffed them up, Paul says. Overall, these false teachers were promoting worldly rules as a means of spiritual growth. That's, that was really the problem. And again, all those are found in just a few verses in the very next chapter. So that sets the stage for us. Who wrote it? Paul, who do you write it to? The church in Colossae, little church plant. Why? Because their pastor came and told him all this stuff that I just mentioned to you. He told him that that was going on. And he wants to make sure 
that those people in that little church plant hunker down on the truth of the gospel that they already received. They're worried the gospel isn't power enough, and Paul wants them to know it really is. It really is powerful enough. So with that said, let's start reading the opening to Paul's letter. In Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. These are the words of the one true and living God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints and light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the Lord. So what's in view here in this opening to Paul's letter is the power of the gospel. Christ is the heart of that gospel, and we're going to get into that big time today. My hope for you this morning is that you gain a better understanding of the life and work of Jesus, so much so that you're just, that you're just blown away, you, that you're able to grab the, the magnitude and the scope of it, even if just for a minute, because we are forgetful, right? We walk away and we forget how kind the Lord has been to us. It's easier to ask for things than thank him for things when he's finally given them to us, right? We can be very forgetful that way. But I want you to be absolutely floored with the magnitude and scope of what Jesus has accomplished in human history already and intends to. We'll get there, but just scratching the surface here of what Paul is aiming at in this opening to his letter. Paul's reminding these people we're being confused by false teachers of the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel unites us to our Father in heaven. And it unites us together as brothers and sisters adopted into his family. And it delivers us from the power of evil. That's how powerful it is. That's how powerful the gospel is. It's not lacking in any way. Christ is not lacking in any way. These people wanted a fullness. Paul says, you got it. The main idea of the sermon this morning is really simple. The gospel 
changes everything. Literally everything. But you know, I say that and, and it's kind of underwhelming, isn't it? It's like, that's it? Yeah. That's it. I mean, what do you want? It's only everything, right? That was part of the issue the family of God and Colossae was dealing with. Everything wasn't enough for them. or They, they thought maybe there was something other than Christ's life, death, resurrection, and ascension on the table that they needed to pick up. Paul says, no. Christ alone is sufficient. The gospel we gave you and that you believed literally changes everything. There's nothing left. How? How does the gospel change everything? It brings us to one father into one family and one kingdom. Those are the points for you this morning. Those are your points. One father, one family, one kingdom. One father. Paul uses an unusual phrase in verse 3. He says, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Usually he thanks God the Father and Jesus in his letters. But here he directs his thanks to the Father. And in verse 2, grace and peace to you from God the Father. Paul is about to blow your mind with who Jesus is in the rest of this letter. But he wants to make it clear from the outset who Jesus is and what he has done. And that you cannot understand that without understanding his relationship to his Father. Think back to Jesus' baptism in Mark chapter 1. He comes up out of the water, the, the sky tears open, a voice comes down out of heaven and says, you are my beloved son. For with you I'm well pleased, right? And then again, in the transfiguration in Mark chapter 9, right? Uh, Jesus takes a couple of his disciples, Paul, John, James, goes up on a hill, sky tears open, voice comes down from heaven, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Jesus came to reconcile us to God by bringing us into a familial relationship with him. So that when the Father looks at us, he can see the righteousness of Christ that has been given to us by faith and call us sons and daughters. To be able to look at what Christ has done for us on our behalf and be able to say to you, Carol, with you I am well pleased because of the righteousness of Christ. That's what it does. It brings us into familiar, familial relationship with God. The book of Colossians is loaded with what theologians call Christological language. All right, I'm going to give you a little bit of Christology 101 this morning. All right? I'm not going to pretend that y'all can't handle this or this is over your heads. This is not just for seminary students. Right? This, is, this is the life and work of Christ. Like It's pretty basic stuff. Okay? But I'm going to give you a way that I think might be helpful for you to think through it. I'm going to give you the one, two, three, four of Christology. You ready? Okay? If, you're, if you'd like to take notes, you know what, forget that. I don't care if you like, you need, you need to write on your hand. If you don't have a pen, get one from your neighbor. This is gold I stole from seminary and I'm giving it to you, okay? The one, two, three, four of Christology. Jesus is one person with two natures 
occupying three offices that moves in four pivotal movements. Four pivotal movements. All right, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to flesh that out for you and put a little bit more meat on that bone. One person. Jesus is the eternal son of God. The second person of the Trinity. That's who he is. And he is God because God exists in three distinct but inseparable persons. These three persons are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. That's who Jesus is. One person, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, equal in power and glory. He possesses two natures. He's both fully human and fully divine. He wasn't always human. He has always been divine. He took to himself a human nature when he was born a man. And he never ceases to be a man after that. He, he's a man now, y'all. Right? When he rose again from the dead, he, he, he told Thomas, who was, who was doubting, he said, go ahead, stick your fingers through the holes in my hands. Right? Sat on the beach and ate breakfast with his disciples before he ascended into heaven. He, he, he is and forevermore will be the theanthropos, the God-man. He had to be fully human because he had to die in our place. And he had to be divine because only God can save us. So one person, two natures, fully human, fully divine. Three offices. Those offices are prophet, priest, and king. This one's super easy, y'all. Okay, what do prophets do? They reveal the will of God for our salvation. That's what they do. What did priests do? What do we think of when we think of priests? Priests in the Old Testament, they, they offered sacrifices and interceded for God's people. That's what priests do. Jesus offers up of himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice. Reconciled us to God and continually makes intercession for us all the time. What's a king do? Subdues. Right? Rules and reigns. And restrains evil and conquers our enemies and his. That's what kings do. Jesus is the prophet, the priest, the king. Capital P, capital P, capital K. Right? Four movements. All right, now hold on to your hats. All right, I'm going to split these up and make it a little bit easier. We'll take these in two parts. All right? We talk about Jesus in his state of humiliation and his state of exaltation. You ever heard that before? His state of humiliation, his state of exaltation. Real simple, all right? This is how theologians describe Jesus' condescension and his ascension, if you will. And it's fun in English because they rhyme, right? Humiliation, exaltation. His humiliation was being born a man, dying, and being buried. So, so the, the first two pivotal movements I'm talking about are in this state of humiliation. His incarnation to the atonement. Being born and dying for sin. Okay? And then the next two movements are in his state of exaltation, his resurrection and enthronement. Okay? So the four pivotal movements, incarnation to atonement, resurrection to enthronement. He's born, he dies. He's risen from the dead, ascends to the right hand of his Father in heaven. 
Why did the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, do all that? To unite you to one Father and to enjoy the relationship with him that you were intended to have but was forfeited by mankind in the garden when Adam sinned. So that you could be brought into the family of God. That's why he did it. Point number two, one family. The Bible tells us there's two families. One human race, one race, two families. You're either in Adam or in Christ. And in Adam, all die. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. But in Christ shall all be made alive. We're all born into sin as a descendant of Adam. He failed us. Adam failed us. You know, don't be mad, Adam. You would have failed too, okay? You would have failed too. But Adam dropped the ball. He was our representative. He was representative of all of mankind. He dropped the ball. So somebody's got to come in, pick it up, and score for our team. And whoever that is has to be perfect. And he also has to be a man like us. Big problem. How do we do that? That's why God had to take on flesh and become a man. No one born of Adam could do it. No one born of Adam could obey the Father perfectly. Jesus did. Jesus came and he was perfectly obedient to his Father. And anyone who believes in him gets transferred out from under Adam and adopted into God's family. The power of the gospel brings us into this family of God. When Paul says in verse 2 there, in this opening to his letter, he says, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ the Colossae, that's who he's talking to there. Family. And that word brothers, adelphos in the Greek, that's used a lot in the New Testament. So much so, it's so common that we tend to overlook what people really meant when they said it. They considered each other, people in their church, a second home. I mean, truly a second home. They reminded each other that they were members of the same family. And they treated each other like family who all shared one father. What's that mean for us and what did it mean for them? What Paul wanted them to know, what you need to know, is that there's already a seat reserved for them at the family table. There's already a seat for you at the family table. Their hope, your hope, is in the life to come. The, the, the hope is stored up for them in heaven, Paul says. Their complete salvation, your complete salvation, already exists. It's done. But the fullness of it that they're longing for it can't be found on the side of glory. There's lots of people that want you to believe there is some way. If you just follow my program, if you just, if you just read my book, right? There's lots of people that think and will teach you that you can experience that fullness on this side of glory. You can. That hope is laid up for you in heaven, Paul says. You know, I told you all last week, Amanda took me to a nice restaurant for my 40th birthday, right? And when she first called and tried to make reservations, they only had one at 9 o'clock. Like, that's a little late for us, but we took it, you know? And then, thankfully, Amanda watched the, the reservation app like a hawk 
and ended up finding us one at like 7.15, which is terrific. But when she called them the first time, the person was like, you know, I'm sorry, you really, you need to make reservations like two weeks in advance to get in here. So imagine making reservations and then waiting. That's kind of where we are, okay? That's what Paul's telling them. Don't lose hope just because you're waiting. When you get there, there's going to be a table waiting on you. It's a done deal. But you've got to wait the two weeks. Paul reminds them again in verse 12 that God the Father himself has already provided what sinners needed to be qualified and considered worthy to join the family of God. The gospel changes everything, he says. There's nothing left undone, nothing left to do. We're just waiting because there's a process that's been set in motion, and it's not over yet. The kingdom of God is already here. We're just waiting for the fullness of it as it continues to work itself out in human history. That's how the kingdom of God works. Last point, the one kingdom. You see where Paul says there in verse 6, that the gospel has come to them in the whole world and how it's bearing fruit and growing. I want you to remember, Paul is a Jew. He's the Jew of Jews. He knows his Old Testament better than just about anybody. And if you know the Old Testament, you can see how much of Paul's writing is really just pulling the veil off of the Old Testament. It, it is a continuation and a completion of everything that came before. So Paul's often borrowing language from the Old Testament to communicate who Jesus is and what he came to do. And here, he's using this bearing fruit and growing kind of language, which sound, sounds kind of familiar to us from parts of Genesis and other parts of the Bible. In Genesis, God commands Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. It's what he tells Noah after the flood and his family's there and it's a recreation. It's what he tells him. He tells Abraham the same thing and several of his descendants that their number as the children of God would increase and multiply. And as we know from reading the Bible, the children of God are often wayward throughout the Old Testament. And we know God keeps reminding them again and again of the same promise that he will fill the earth with his glory through his image bearers. It's what Adam was supposed to do. Fill the earth with perfect image bearers of God and rule over it as stewards. Adam failed. Jesus doesn't. He ushered in the kingdom of God and rules and reigns over all creation and is filling it with his image bearers. That's what happens every time someone you know is saved. Every time someone you know professes faith in Christ, is reconciled to God, one father, united into that one family of God, and brought into this one kingdom, that kingdom is growing for the glory of God and for the good of mankind. That is the redemptive theme of the entire Bible. That is miraculous. That's why we praise God when we hear people who have who have repented of their sin, who have turned from their sin and given their lives to Christ. It is a miracle. Our family is growing, right? We're joined to that person, whether we know their names or not. If that happened in Nebraska an hour ago, maybe not, they're behind us, an hour from now, okay? 
every time that happens, somebody is coming into our family, coming into the one kingdom that is growing. Paul says there, the whole world, right? So at his time, you know, this is, this is really rhetorical hyperbole. It's an exaggeration to make a point, okay? He could have meant, you know, all of the known world at the time or all of the Roman Empire. But the point is, he's trying to emphasize that the gospel is taking root. The kingdom of God has come. And that mustard seed that Jesus was talking about in his parable, it has taken root. It is growing and nothing is going to stop it. The power of the gospel has been unleashed, and it is having its intended effect everywhere it goes. The power of the gospel changes everything. It changes our lives. It makes us able to live a life worthy of the Lord, and that pleases him, verse 10. It will bear fruit. It will grow. And Paul says in verse 11, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Strengthened. Power. Might. These are strong words. Pun intended. Paul reminds us God gives what he demands. That's his point. Living this kind of life, one that's worthy of the Lord and that pleases him, is hard. That's a tall order. That should make us squirm. It should surprise us. We should feel inadequate. Because then Paul says, everything you need to do that, God gives you that too. His strengthening comes with all power. And when he says all, he means the greatest measure. Complete. Unlimited. You will be strengthened by God, for God, with the greatest strength imaginable. That's, that's what Paul's trying to say. The gospel is so powerful, it literally changes anything, anything and everything. And the strength they need specifically right now in the midst of this false teaching that has them, as I said, sort of schizophrenic, not really sure, are they in, are they out, what do they have to do, what's left to do? What they needed then was what Paul prays for them there at the end of verse 11, endurance and patience. Let's read that again, verse 11. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy giving thanks to the father who has qualified you qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints and light the father has qualified them to share in the inheritance of the saints of life they, they're no longer in darkness they're no longer in darkness they've been delivered out of darkness he says in verse 13 they are part of the kingdom of his beloved son, Jesus, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. They were being told by these false teachers how to have the fullness of wisdom and understanding and spiritual knowledge. And Paul answers that in the prayer for them in verse 9 and later says it again that in Christ are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Christ alone are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All of that can be found in Christ alone. It's all from him. It's all for him. It's all to him. It's all about him. Paul says in verse 13 that it is in Jesus that we have redemption and forgiveness of sins, reassuring them that it's Christ alone that solves their sin problem, that they know good and well they still have. Do you ever feel like that? 
not so sure, right? If you've been a Christian for any length of time, my bet is you have some understanding of your capacity for sin. And it surprises you sometimes. Maybe early in your Christian walk, it was hard for you to imagine this being true for you, that you were saved. Because if that's true, how can I still keep doing these things? You know, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm saved, how come I don't feel like it? Is that familiar to any of you? It probably is for at least the teenage Christians in the room. And by that, I mean spiritual years. If you've been around the block long enough, that, that's a heavy load. That's the load they were carrying, okay? And all these false teachers did is throw more weight on their shoulders to give them not good news, but good advice about how to make the, the load lighter. Problem is, it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't. You can have a forklift, and it won't take that burden off your shoulders. Christ alone can do that. That's what Paul's reassuring them of. Because that's what was on the table. Is Christ sufficient? Is essentially the question everyone was asking. Was his sacrifice really adequate to take care of my sin problem? Because I know I'm still a sinner. And Paul writes this whole letter to show them and us just how adequate Jesus really is. An old Puritan pastor by the name of Thomas Brooks said it best, I think. God hath in himself all power to defend you, all wisdom to direct you, all mercy to pardon you, all grace to enrich you, all righteousness to clothe you, all goodness to supply you, and all happiness to crown you. In Christ alone, we have everything. Doesn't matter, it doesn't feel like it. It's true. The gospel was so big, the Colossians couldn't get their minds around it. That's all right, neither can we. It's easy to think God left something out because our experience of the world and, and our present circumstances give us the impression that grace isn't enough, or it's not working. It's not working fast enough. We have to be reminded it is working. And remember the truth that we've received so we're not so easily rattled every time something in our own lives goes awry or the whole world's gone mad. We have to be reminded. And you need to remember that when you feel like you've lost your grip on God, you never had a grip on him to begin with. But he always has a grip on you. And he will never let you go. The series through Colossians is called Christ Alone. And we sing that song a lot, right? I actually asked Matt if we could sing it this Sunday. He said, nope, bulletin's been printed, sorry. But we know that song. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. For I am his, he is mine bought with the precious blood of Christ. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. No power of hell, 
No scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home here in the power of Christ I'll stand. Can you sing that in confidence the next time we sing it? Can those words leave your mouth knowing Will they come from a place of certainty and astonishment at the reality of that fact? I hope as we work through the book of Colossians that your amazement for Jesus and what he has done and what he is doing will will just continue to grow and grow and grow and just wipe you out until your face is on the floor and you just can't imagine it. hope we can get there. I really do. We'll pray that it will be so. Let's pray. Lord God, we're so used to fighting our own battles, so worried about self-image and self-preservation and sticking up for ourselves that we forget no victory is won without you. And the ultimate victory was won a long time ago, Lord Jesus, when you entered into the darkness and cast your marvelous light. In you and in you alone is our hope and assurance and protection from evil and the forgiveness of our sins. Lord, we, we might be waiting to see the fullness of your kingdom in the world, but we thank you we already have the fullness of your love and your mercy and can be called sons and daughters. We praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm just going to ask you to stay seated in your uh, early songs.